0: This episode of the podcast is sponsored by tools for trails because tough trails need tough tools. They offer a wide variety of quality tools and accessories for trail building that are tested and proven by industry leaders. Tools include the Proho 70 AR Travis tool, a multifaceted tool that can do everything you want during trail maintenance. And for trail planning, there's the Sunto PM5 360 PC clinometer to always get your grades correct for a limited time, Tools for Trails is offering listeners 30% off any order, so visit ToolsforTrails.com/slash discount/slash podcast and get your organization stocked up for the trail building season. You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers. With the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. When it comes to my work that's in the realm of creative, whether it be this podcast, outdoor education programming, advertising, or any of the advocacy work that I do. I handle any moments where I'm lacking inspiration or what some describe as a writer's block by reaching out to someone and grabbing a coffee or a beer with them. I'm so fortunate to be surrounded by so many people that no matter what, whenever I leave their company, I walk away inspired and and ready to dive back into whatever I'm working on. With COVID-19, those in-person meetings just aren't happening anymore. The goal of this episode is to essentially replicate that. I left this conversation feeling refreshed. My guests are always a joy to speak to, and I've had them on the show numerous times. They've all been longtime supporters, and it was just nice to socialize with them again, even if it was virtually, something we may all be sick of by the end of this. But my hope for this episode is that you leave inspired, that you leave refreshed and recharged to tackle whatever comes next. It's cliche to say, but we're all in this together. Now, I'm your host, Brent Hillier, and this is episode 77, of Frontlines. I'm joined by three guests. The first is Susie Murphy. She's the executive director of the San Diego Mountain Biking Association. Hi, Susie. Welcome back to the show.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: And next I'm joined by Patrick Lucas of the Aboriginal Youth Mountain Bike Program. Hi, Patrick. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. And finally, I'm joined by Jay Darby once again. He's the Fields Program Coordinator with IMBA Canada. Hey, Jay.
2: Hey, Brett. It's always good to be here. I I wanted to kind of get the
0: the four of us into a conversation together and and just kind of discuss not necessarily the particulars of of what's happening right now with with COVID nineteen and and you know the numbers or or what each of our communities are, is necessarily doing and, and reacting to, but Perhaps what's going to happen after this? I think a lot of us, uh, whether we have time or our time looks different right now, I think a lot of the work that I've been doing and, and, you know, I'm willing to guess that that might be similar for you is, is a lot of kind of planning for the future and, and looking at, at what things are to come. And, and so what I'd like to, to begin with is, is maybe uh, where each of you are. Um, what has, the current situation been like, um, and then from there, I'd like to dive into, you know, what are we going to do once this thing's over, or or once we're uh, to the the new normal. So perhaps first, Susie, if if you wouldn't mind starting us off, right now in in San Diego, what's the current kind of lockdown situation? You know, what's open, what's closed? Just so people have an understanding of uh, of perhaps your situation compared to our situation or their situation.
1: Yeah. This week has been a week of dramatic reopenings. As far as trails go, we've had more openings and updates from most of the agencies and jurisdictions that we work with this week as well. So constantly monitoring all that has been uh, a lot of work for us and keeping our community informed has been a challenge, but we've done our best. As an organization with, you know. 1300, 1400 members. Our goal has just been try to answer all the questions, keep a page updated on our website. But I feel emails and direct messages and Twitter messages and, you know, daily, hourly on, is this open? Is that open? Is this open? Yeah. So it's yeah. been a lot of work. <laughs> but it's also on the, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. It's also been a great way for us to engage with uh, our members and with new people. Mm. um, as to what our knowledge base is. That's like, awesome. You know, so that's interesting. Yeah.
0: And that, that kind of opens up a whole can of worms that I definitely want to get into today. But, um, before we do that, Patrick, if, if, uh, you wouldn't mind kind of filling us in what's, uh, what's the current, uh, environment like right now out in the Courtney Comox Valley out on uh Vancouver
3: Island. I'd say it's pretty, pretty relaxed right now. Um, things are starting to Uh, open up a little bit um definitely starting to see a few more people out on the trails so yeah i just say it's pretty quiet i think people here have been really good about staying in and and trying to flatten the curve and as we've been seeing throughout the province which has been uh interesting um Mm. so it'll be interesting to see what the next couple weeks bring as we open up again and i think a lot of people need to realize that we flatten the curve we haven't stopped this thing and it's going to be a matter of you know how do we how do we sort of adjust to this as we go forward so we'll
0: go from from island living to uh kootenay living which uh different but similar uh and so jay what's it like uh where are you at are you out in christina lake right now
2: i am yeah so i live in the rural west kootenays you know a town less than 1000 people um mostly seniors and young families you know it really as far as the whole Paradigm of our province changing, you know, it, it, we are probably seeing less, you know, visual impact in our lives compared to, you know, other communities like Courtney Comox or the lower mainland or even larger urban centers in the interior. I think for all intents and purposes, you know, my life actually hasn't changed that much. I, you know, go to town once a week for groceries and I ride my road bike kind of by myself and you know i've been refraining from mountain biking mostly some people haven't been like they've been riding pretty regularly in town uh, in the next town over as well i think that for a larger interior bc context the one biggest issue in directly related to mountain biking or, or how this impacted recreation has been um through the closing of bc parks the Okanagan Valley especially lost some of its largest riding areas. And you've got all these people wanting to recreate and we, they've closed some of the largest riding areas in the Valley. And that has caused a fair amount of friction and tension between communities where in Kelowna, for example, there's, there's really only five trails that are open to ride right now. Uh, In West Kelowna, there's about three or four, but Penticton has 54 trails or 54 kilometers of trails, I should say, open to ride. And Vernon also additionally has pretty much none open to ride right now. Some are covered in snow and some are in a BC park. So in the Okanagan Valley, the greater interior BC context, especially we're seeing friction between communities, we, You know, people kind of skirting the, the rules that are in place about uh, travel and, and recreating outside of their locality. So that, you know, well, it hasn't been affecting me, definitely my friends and and other communities I've lived in, I've seen some tensions and frictions kind of from this. We all want to go do some stuff, but, you know, we're not supposed to do it in other towns, but that's the only place to go do it.
0: Yeah. And, and, in the province of, of BC, um, we'll, we'll kind of see an interesting transition when we get to the 14th of May and that is where most BC parks are going to open or have open. And, uh, and then the parks that are around Vancouver where I am are actually going to remain closed. And that's partly because they, they don't know how to manage the capacity that, that they're going to get. And I, I think it's really interesting, you know, Personally, I'm upset because I, I really want to try to go skiing one more time <laughs> before before it's impossible. This will be the last year that I can ski with my my son on my back. So I'm trying to get out one more time because he's going to be way too big uh, next <laughs> winter. Um, so that's kind of my personal want. But But what's really interesting is with these closures, and I think whether you had complete closures or you had partial closures of trails or land managers were threatening closures of trails what really came out of it was all of a sudden people were coming out of nowhere kind of saying we want these trails and we need these trails. And Susie, you shared a document uh, with me. I, I believe this was yesterday or the day before. And uh, it, it actually came in a really interesting time because just the other day I was sitting in a, in a call with a bunch of outdoor educators, just folks that I've worked with in the past or, or people that I know through other other folks. And we were talking about what outdoor education is going to look like and youth specifically youth outdoor education is going to look like going forwards. And one of the big things that came out of the discussion was that, parks and outdoor spaces are an essential service and and one of the first lines in this document that you shared <laughs> with me Susie is that um and and i'm going to quote it here is health experts have emphasized that outdoor recreation is an essential activity during the covid-19 pandemic mm-hmm. and and i think that's really interesting and and but at the same time you know they they weren't necessarily it wasn't made available to people and and so I think what we got was an exposure of of perhaps maybe how underfunded our parks are, how perhaps under-resourced they are, Um, but at the same time, COVID-19 exposed how valuable uh, these spaces are. What what can we do after this? Go ahead, Jay.
2: What I was going to say is, you know, I think that in the British Columbia context, this directly exposed that specific issue, that outdoor recreation – and parks infrastructure in this province are supremely underfunded and undersupported by the government. And I think that to a large extent, the public doesn't understand how deeply that impacts the ability for us to access and experience those resources. And, you know, it's the conservation groups have been making this argument for years. Inba Canada has been presenting to the provincial government in BC about this issue the in Canada, BC council, as well as bike clubs across the province have been, you know, actively trying to petition the government through lobbying means to, you know, increase the funding for both rec sites and trails to develop legal trail networks and support mountain bike clubs and other recreation groups to have legal trail networks, as well as seeing the province increase the funding to BC parks for infrastructure development in regards to trail systems. And it just, you know, it, I mm-hmm. would not be surprised if the conversations in the bureaucracy about closing BC parks was directly related to staffing and and the infrastructure that's in place is they just it isn't there. they can't support the demand with the money they have?
1: yep, I agree with all of that. This report that was referenced was put out by several groups from the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area um through the UC San Francisco Center for Nature and Health. But it involved the Bay Area Health Officers, um, Together Bay Area, of which um, CAMTB is a, is a member. There are county parks people up there and Bay Area Regional Health Initiative folks. And yeah, it's just uh, parks are essential. It says one of the five essential activities uh, was engaging in outdoor activities such as walking, hiking and running. Of course they always say this and they don't include cycling, which is you know, <laughs> the cycling advocates need to get on that. It's always shocking. Yeah. Um yeah. so uh anyway, it's a it's an interesting report. The Bay Area has been doing a lot of um, it seems to me, very collaborative work in the midst of all this over the past several weeks and working now with the folks from California Mountain Biking Coalition, I kind of am more plugged into things on a statewide level, and it's been really interesting to see how the different counties kind of have reacted uh, to this. But I commend the Bay Area for the work here because it's a model, I believe. Our county, County of San Diego, has done a pretty good job and very communicative, and lots of resources and things. If you want to go click through the website, there's everything you'd ever want to know. But we live uh, San Diego County as opposed to where you guys are from. Obviously we have over three and a half million people in the county. We have very not enough trails ever, not enough parks ever. And they're all, you know, have backlogs of maintenance and they're understaffed and it doesn't matter if it's, I mean, we work from federal to state to local jurisdictions and agencies on down to like water districts and none of them are, none of them are funded enough. Uh, but I think that um, the funding issue has to be worked at at a state and federal level. So, working with CAMTB as a five hundred one c four, we're already working on signing on to legislation and supporting things that uh, are, you know, will hopefully enable uh, more funding and keep that funding sustainable for a long long period of time.
0: There's kind of two things that I I see happening. Uh, with this and, and one is that, you know, when this is all over and everybody goes back to work and everybody goes back to driving in their cars and, and clogging up our highways and our roads, um, and nobody has any time anymore, it'll just go back to what it was and, and we will return to a, a normal. And, and, you know, I think that, that could be years away, but nonetheless that, you know, that could be one way that we go. What I hope is, is that, everybody that has perhaps even found a new activity or found a new love for the outdoors or, or the trails that are close to them or, or understood how valuable they really were, especially when they were taken away, you know, perhaps even the closure of some of these parks could be one of the best things that that happened to us. You know, could this create more advocates, more people that are passionate about, about trails and how do we capitalize on that? Like as, as advocates, as trail advocates, as stewards, how do we, take this and and go forwards with it? What types of things can we do?
1: Well, there's a couple of things here. So many new people are buying bikes, getting out and hiking, trail running and whatever. So the two parts of this are, how do we reach all those new trail users and inform them about how precious these trails are and uh, and about trail etiquette? right? So we've been getting a lot of complaints, right? Oh, there's so many new people and they don't know what to do and they've never been outside and they're oblivious to what's going on. And, you know, so we have that education piece. How do we reach Mm -hmm. these new people Mm -hmm. and give them the education, you know, outdoor trail etiquette education that they so sorely need. Uh, The other part of it as a, as a nonprofit membership organization (laughs) is how do I reach these people and have them possibly become members, uh, or at least, Read our newsletter uh, to understand that trails just don't happen. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of working on an idea, a different, I wouldn't call them members, but like an ally sort of uh, like, say, people would donate like $10 a month. Yeah. And, but say they're a hiker. Like, how do we reach out to hikers, trail runners, equestrians who, you know, we're friends with a lot of those people already, but there's a lot more that we're not. How do we reach out to them and say, hey, for $10 donation, you know, we are advocating for multi-use trails. How do we, you know, if you add your voice to ours, and we already have the relationships with all these agencies that are working on all these things, but if we add your voice, it, you know, it'll help all of us together. So I'm kind of working on something like that.
0: You know, and and it's funny in any other time, this if I saw this many people out on the trail and, and this many new people out on the trail, I would be out there saying hello and shaking yeah. hands and <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> talking to yeah. people. Right. But we're just so hampered right now by, you know, I, I as somebody that is, I'm a, I'm a people person that I, I just love chit-chatting and talking. It's like, I feel like my, the best tool that I have to talk to people or to, to, to get people to understand advocacy and trails. I feel like I've lost that tool in yeah. my toolbox. And so.
1: Right. We can't table. We can't go out and table anywhere. I have yeah, requests, yeah. I have requests out to land managers to be like I will come and stand at whatever trailhead and talk mm-hmm. to people, but nobody's given me the go ahead yet.
2: Go ahead, Jay. Yeah, I think Susie's absolutely right. I think that you know clubs and advocacy groups, whether they're mountain biking or or multi stakeholder, it's like this is we're looking at making. Lemonade out of lemons here, we're, we've got a golden opportunity. We've got more people on the trails probably than ever. We've got new people out on the trails and in our outdoor recreation areas, you know, we need to find out how to reach out to them, what messaging to use and, and, you know, and and how to get them on board, keeping up with the activities as well as engaging with the advocacy groups out there trying to protect these areas and protect access for outdoor recreation, you know a key component is always optics. And I think Patrick can definitely speak to this better than me. Um, he's been doing it a little bit longer. I work with him on the Aboriginal youth mountain bike program as well. And um, in regards to the work that we've done with Aboriginal communities and first nations communities across the province in regards to how you frame outdoor recreation as being a, good and a service for the community that benefits both the mental and physical health of all community members if they start to engage with the with the provision of of community recreation trails of the ability to get out in the wilderness or get out in their community near community and and access the you know the outdoors and i think you know patrick can probably yeah speak that better but but there is a lot of really good cases we've seen where this is just a such an important thing is is framing it that this is a, a a health and, and mental welfare thing. It's not just about having fun in the in the in the woods. Mm-hmm. That's your cue, Patrick. <laughs>
3: I was just waiting for you to stop talking, Justin. <laughs>
2: Touche. Uh
3: yeah. <laughs> well I think I mean this has definitely been an an issue that's been on my mind for quite a while and actually leading up out of the the 2017 wildfires and 2008 wildfires here in BC where we had a a lot of really interesting lessons about how important the trails were for those communities in terms of preparing them for that crisis and helping them uh, through it and then helping them afterwards. And what we learned from that, what we saw from that led us to actually approach the Canada Red Cross and we got grants from them for two years in a row, where we worked with First Nations all over BC, uh, training folks up to become trail builders, and then building new trails in the community. And it was seen as part of the recovery effort. And we learned a lot about how to position ourselves and how to promote the trails as a part of making communities healthy, resilient, and adaptive. And I think that's something that the mountain bike community and just trail community in general needs to be talking about a lot more for too long. We've been stuck on talking about tourism and that kind of stuff. And that, it, That's still like I was talking to somebody yesterday from a community who was calling and asking for some advice on how to approach this and kept wanting to talk about tourism. And the one thing we're learning about all this and ongoing climate crisis is how, fragile and vulnerable tourism is and how important all those other values are turning out to truly be. So I think the mountain bike communities, we need to get away from talking about tourism all the time. Yes, tourism is important and it's politicians like it because it's a lot sexier. But, you know, uh, thinking about like the work that Rocky Blondin was doing with the Fraser Valley Mountain Bike Club, where he was doing like researching and comparing numbers on, you know, The difference for a small rural community to develop a pool as compared to developing some trails and how much better that investment was and how much smarter it was and how, uh, you know, and then you link that up with this idea of like how trails are so important for maintaining health and mental wellness in this period. I think that's the message that we need to be getting out there much more strongly. It's about building resilient, adaptive, and healthy communities. And I think that's going to be super important going forward. And a lot of time we'll be saying stuff like that and folks will be saying to me like, "Oh, I never really thought about that way." It's like that's because we have not been getting the message out. And I think that's something we need to be doing consistently.
0: Are you seeing communities reach out to you right now, Patrick? Like new communities?
3: Uh, not a lot. No. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean,
0: I assume everybody's pretty busy right now. So sometimes we're so consumed with just the d- the day in day out that, that we can't be looking at, at the future necessarily.
3: Yeah. And it's, I mean, yeah, for the most part, everybody's just kind of hunkered down. It feels like, mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. just trying to get through it. Um, in terms of, uh, first nation communities, I'm not, I, I am talking to folks quite a bit, but they're definitely, in a different mindset um sadly i think what's you know what's going to happen here is um the province is going to start to open up and uh first nation communities are going to get hit by this later and everybody else Mm -hmm. going to get hit Mm -hmm. really hard like we just had our first uh death of an elder in a community here on the coast just a little while ago um so i think we're they're going to be in fairly restrictive kind of lockdown mode for quite a while and you know, pleading with people to pay attention and and to think about how vulnerable their elders are. And uh, Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be a struggle throughout the fall or through the summer into the fall. And I think uh, folks like Justin and I are going to have to be pretty patient about (laughs) where we get to, when we get to return and start working again. That being said, I think going forward in the future, I think we are going to be a part of that recovery effort. And I think the trails that we have built are going to prove to be extremely important is a lot of the little trail systems that we've been building, these little tiny little trail systems in First Nation reserves around the province that for a lot of folks, that's going to be their only real chance to get out and go for a walk without having to leave their community and go somewhere else. And a lot of communities, like their people are telling them, don't leave, don't, mm-hmm. don't come back, like just stay where you are. So if they do have some little trails, it's going to be absolutely critical for them. Like you think yeah. about how important it is for the rest of us, for them, It's it's an absolute lifesaver. Uh, And I think uh, we're definitely going to be trying to take positive stories about that and spread that as far and wide as we can. Yeah,
0: there's there's so many layers to this when it comes to First Nations communities. You know, we think about just the the knowledge keepers within those communities, the elders within those communities and, and how valuable they are in, in protecting languages and, and stories. And, and, and that's, you know, those are the people that are at risk of, of this, uh, of COVID-19. And then at the, the same time, you know, you're dealing with communities that have, were struggling. Some communities were struggling before this, and we're in health crises before this, this particular health crisis, and we're struggling with access to water, some of them and, and all sorts of things. And now this is just kind of another layer on top of that. It, it, some things that are happening right now in BC, there are some communities that are just kind of sh- saying, no, the, the door is closed. You're not coming in here. And they're just keeping people from, from coming in. And within a, a first nation's Community, they can do that, which is really great. There's been other communities like Squamish, British Columbia, who has kind of said like, nobody come here, you can't come here, and and um, they were kind of told that like, nah, you, you can't really do that. But a, a First Nations community has that right to actually close off their community and say nobody can come in.
3: Yeah, some of them, some of them are able to do that, and and they're trying to to differing degrees of success. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. I think you're going to start seeing a little bit more of that even now as the province does open up and they're not ready to do so. Yeah. So I I think it's going to be a challenging situation for a lot of folks. Uh, Some communities though they're on, you know, their communities are literally bisected by really busy highways. So it Mm -hmm. becomes harder for them to do so. Yeah. Interesting.
0: We're seeing not only an increase of of trail usage right now, or or perhaps a, a, uh, there would be an increase of trail use if it wasn't for certain trails being shut down um, in some communities that that do have full kind of lockdowns on on trail access. What we are seeing is a surge in in, in cycling in general. Uh, a lot more people on bikes. Um, there are department stores that are selling out of bikes. One of the the department stores uh, that I saw in uh, in in my community in North Vancouver, uh, the Canadian Tire, you know, comparable to a, a Walmart as far as the quality of bikes that they sell they were selling out of bikes each week and they were bringing in 200 bikes a week and they were selling them um, at, at kind of the the peak of this which is amazing i'm seeing people in my in my condo building that i had no clue we're cyclists, <laughs> um, you know, and I wonder like, where did you, where were you storing that bike? I've never seen you with the bike. You know, I know the other cyclist in my condo building, right? There's 30, 30 units in my building. There's, there's one other cyclist in my building. Um, and, and that's not the case anymore. So we're seeing people get out there. We're seeing people buy bikes. We're seeing people get out, dust things off. Uh, and we're seeing bike shops be declared essential services. That was something that happened uh, fairly early on in British Columbia. Susie, maybe you can kind of speak a little bit to what happened in California, because that was initially bike shops were not considered essential services. Um, but how did that get changed?
1: The road advocates uh, and other people across the state uh, realized pretty quick that bikes, uh, bike shops weren't on the essential services list when they were in other states. And so it was a pretty quick uh, activation of everyone to get uh, a letter out and contacting the governor's office. And we were working concurrently with uh, our county as well. The sheriff in a couple of locations in North County, the sheriff actually went in as shops were working, repairing bikes and like literally shut that, like made them lock their door. And we're like, oh, come on. And so, I mean, nothing came of those. They just asked them to close. It was nothing like anybody got a ticket or anything. Yeah. 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 So anyway, we would let all the bike shops know what we were doing and we gave them, you know, all the phone numbers to call and emails to mail. And so we all just worked on it together and it was pretty, I mean, it came together pretty quickly. I think that the state and our County realized pretty quick that it was maybe just an oversight. And so they rectified it uh, fairly quickly. So it was uh, fun to be involved in a, Advocacy issue that had a a, a short term <laughs> win, which we don't get very mm-hmm. often. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. It's you know that's an interesting remark too because I feel like uh, you know we're all used to the the cog of government moving slowly, and that's not something I think. Most people get very frustrated by that. I think if you've spent any amount of time in advocacy, you've learned to kind of change your time scale of when things are going to happen. But this is this is a very quickly moving thing. And we're seeing all levels of government moving very quickly. Um, and, And it might not be fast enough, but it's absolutely incredible what's happening. You know, looking at unemployment and employment insurance and the changes that are happening there both in Canada and the United States like that is those are big systems those are big ships to to try to redirect in different places and some of it's successful some of it's certainly not
1: our bike shops have been slammed i was just on the phone with a owner of one of our sponsor bike shops this morning and and they're just slammed they're open limited hours by appointment but uh charlie just said they are ridiculously busy and um, and that's that's common across a lot of our shops the other advocacy thing that we've been working on with some of our road advocate friends and this has been happening around the country um i don't know about in canada is the slow streets movement so san diego has we only have like three different roads that have gone to the slow street set up in different parts of town but you know uh, seattle portland uh, San Francisco are all doing this slow street thing. And I just, I, I, it's interesting to see that's another fast moving thing, right? Yeah. To get Jurisdictions to pivot so quickly on already laid, you know, alternative transportation plans within their jurisdictions, and then kind of act on those in a quick way has been also mm-hmm. fascinating.
0: Yeah, that is my municipality has made a couple changes, and I've provided feedback on them. Um, but it's something that I have on a weekly basis, I have been pushing local city council to keep moving on these things, because I feel like this is such an opportunity right now. Nobody is in their cars. People aren't parking in front of stores uh, as much as they used to. And so that, that bike lash that, that cycling advocates talk about when, you know, we take away parking spaces to put in new bike lanes or we take away a travel lane to put in a new bike lane, you know, that, that outcry that we always get from the community when that happens. It's less likely to happen, and we have more people that are actually taking advantage of that infrastructure right now. And it's temporary. And one of the tools that a lot of successful municipalities use when they do put in new cycling or or active transportation infrastructure, whether it's you know all it's evolving very quickly about how people get around right now. But you know micro transportation and, and active transportation if you make something temporary, people just get slightly less angry about it. Yep,
1: absolutely. <laughs> and then you can
0: put it on the ground, you can make it happen. And so there's such an opportunity right now for us to kind of put in some of these changes and then perhaps keep them. And and I really hope that we do see some of this stuff, right? Yeah. That's for me right now with a lot of my energy that I've been, you know, I have very limited free time right now with the toddler in the house, but the the limited free time that I have, I've been putting that towards, Reaching out to my municipality, reaching out to my local MLA, and trying to push them on on making these changes because if we can get these changes in now, it just sets us up for success to to get a little bit closer to a more active community after this is all said and done.
3: I, I think that's going to be critical. If I was a planner working in a in a city uh, or any kind of community right now, I'd be really thinking about how can we capitalize on this very short window of time whether it's you know these few months or even the next year or so where people get a chance to rethink their their the space that they use around them and how they use it how they interact with it you know we've been pushed onto these tiny little sidewalks for so so long and now people are starting to see in a really different way how much space we've given over to private vehicles and how that impacts our health and how we move around each other. Um, So I think that's going to be a big question for planners going forward is how can we capitalize on this? How can we maintain this and kind of like, how can we remind people and take people back to that moment where they did have their thinking kind of changed for a moment where new possibilities opened up? That's going to be really critical. And for me as a planner, like, going forward from this, whether I'm working with first nations or non first nations, it'll be really trying to keep that at the forefront of people's minds. Like it's always, people are always saying it's impossible. It's impossible. It's it's impossible until it isn't. Mm -hmm. We suddenly, we decide, okay, we're going to do something about this. Suddenly everything that seems so impossible is now totally possible. But how do we maintain that, that sense uh, where people had their perspective
2: changed? I think, uh, going along with what Patrick's saying and kind of speaking back to what Susie was talking about earlier about, you know, we've got an opportunity and we need to find means of communication with all of these individuals who are engaged with these activities on localized trail networks. I think that something else that's, you know, popping into my mind is that I always talk about mountain biking as an inherently touristic activity that we always want to go ride new trails. We want to ride new places. We want to, travel, you know, I spend my time traveling across the province riding everywhere. And it's amazing. I'm like, I do still yearn for the trails I rode when I first started mountain biking. And, you know, to the greater extent, some people do as well. But I think as a as a general market, mountain biking is fairly migratory in our activity profile, we we go to other towns to ride, we go to these signature trails and other communities, we make these pilgrimages to Moab and Whistler and and things like that. And I think perhaps something that's coming out of this right now is, is mountain bikers are being forced onto their home networks or onto their backyard networks, the little, you know, vestiges of green space, they're able to access in some places like San Diego, where they, you know, California was on, and Susie could speak this better, but on literal lockdown, you could only ride places you could pretty much get to within your neighborhood is that people are active people who are already mountain biking, who are already participating in this sport have now become more in tune with their local trails. If they weren't, you know, a lot of people probably weren't that in tune with their local trails or their local access to trails because they were able to travel an hour away or two hours away to go ride. It's like, now we've got this opportunity as advocates to say, look, what wasn't so awesome about the last 90 days or 60 days? What, What sucked about this? it's like, well, you know, there wasn't that much or the trails weren't that good where I was able to ride or, you know, the parks were closed or what have you. And I think that there's an opportunity there not just to speak with the newcomers or the people who are participating that are bringing bikes out of the garage they haven't ridden in 10 years or have never rode a mountain bike before or whatever or never ridden bikes at all, even on the pavement. Is not only those people, but speaking with our current, you know, mountain bike communities about like, did you notice anything you know, in the last 60 days that we could probably improve upon? And I think that the opportunity to engage with them on those things is gonna be bigger than it used to be because they're, they're, they've been slapped in the face by the reality, <laughs> so to speak. I think there's an opportunity there that clubs are gonna to have to, to think about, yeah. Absolutely,
1: but it comes down to, depending on your community, it, it, it comes down to an equity issue, right? In a community that's park poor, and a, and a good, you know, in normal times that doesn't have access to green space or greenways or an open space that's has improved trails on it. You know, some people are lucky enough to live next to a place where they can get outside without driving. But there's many, many people all up and down California and around and anywhere who live in a very urban setting and they don't have that access. So when you cut off and close all the parks, like how does that... it you know in hindsight this doesn't make any sense and there needs to be you know i hope i always say to people in leadership positions and elected officials i said i hope somebody's taking notes because some of the things that were done here don't make any sense and it and it comes down to equity and how you're treating all people in the community in many different ways employment economically access to food i mean all those things but access to parks as an essential part of our community needs to be addressed in a
2: better way. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, you know, urban, urban recreation.
3: Yeah. Completely agree with that. Yeah. All right. We're all in agreement.
2: Yeah.
1: We're lucky here in San Diego (laughs) um, in in some sense, because San Diego is geographically is based on a series of canyons and they can be very small canyons or very large ones um, like Penisquitos that run east to west or San Diego River Valley that run east to west. But, even in our city heights and some of our most urban areas that can be seen as a little uh, economically depressed, they do have access to canyons that link neighborhoods. And because of groups here like that are urban stewards, uh, San Diego Lands is the main one. They've really worked hard to engage those communities in their outdoor spaces, uh, and so we're lucky in that way.
2: Yeah, I think you know, Brent, you've done some episodes, I think, with individuals who are working on you know, urban trails and urban mountain bike networks and recreation networks on the podcast before. And I think mm-hmm. as Susie's speaking to that, that idea of diversity, you know, and and equity in mountain biking. I think that, yeah, there's definitely an opportunity for clubs as well to start working in different paradigms than we currently are. That that our end goals of more trails can benefit, you know, a larger subsection of the population through focusing on equitable trail access or diverse trail access for, for communities and, and urban regions, especially.
0: Yeah, and and it's you know a very good point, Jay, that you you bring up. I actually was hoping to get Joshua Rebonak on on this episode today, and and uh, unfortunately, technical difficulties, he wasn't able to. But he he is what I would describe as an urban trail expert, and and that is that is his specialty. That's what he's focused on, and because I really think that's what that's the big thing that's coming out of of this pandemic is is how valuable urban trails. Are right now, especially for our really urban centers. Uh, Susie, something you mentioned earlier is that you're getting a lot of emails from people that you don't necessarily hear from and, and people that are asking about opens and openings and closures and, and that kind of thing. Uh, are you also hearing from other community groups that you haven't necessarily heard from in the past, or perhaps you're hearing from some groups more right now?
1: I would say that, that um, we don't have uh, in San Diego County an organized Hiking group that's involved in advocacy. There's some very large Facebook groups that you know plan hikes and things like that. but I don't I, there's a couple of guys who are kind of, I would call them like leads or influencers in the hiking community here in San Diego. And I will say that I have been communicating with them more over the last several weeks because really our San Diego Mountain Bike Association page where I keep all the openings and closures and all the links to all the agencies updated daily most i mean really daily is really become the resource i mean that when i go to look at our website analytics like that page is like off the charts and i mm. think it's in i i i'm on social media a lot i share it when i see people giving the wrong information i said you know here's all the primary sources all the links are here just look here before you start you know telling people things are open and closed when you don't you're not really <laughs> clear on what you're talking about so i would say yeah, yeah i've been in touch with um with uh, other people who um, I will continue those conversations with because I, um, as a the teacher in me <laughs> feels that, um, you know, sometimes I probably over-educate people. Uh, <laughs> the thing that's really frustrated me and my hashtag that I've been using through this is um, hashtag know your land manager. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> because yeah. when we, when we had, um, I'll make this a short story cause I could go on and on, but When we had the city of San Diego doing one thing and the county of San Diego doing another thing, and people have no idea the difference between what is the city of San Diego and what's the county of San Diego. And so, when people would say a question, What about So and So Trail? And I would say in my reply, So and So Trail, managed by the county of San Diego, is currently open, but you can only access it if you live nearby. Don't drive because the parking lots are closed. And then I'd provide the link. To that park system or that agency. And it's taken me extra time, but if I can just educate one person, one or two, I'll be really happy.
0: (laughs) I think, you know, from episode one, which, which Jay was my guest for that has been uh, uh, the, probably the biggest theme in this podcast is just, you know, we are a, a very niche group of people that understand the relationship of land managers and trail users and advocacy groups and the, where the vast majority of trail users do not understand what a land manager is. They don't understand those boundaries. And, and all of a sudden those boundaries are like same thing with, you know, we're seeing this with different counties having different rules about beaches and um, you know, all of these little political boundaries that have existed uh, out there are suddenly having these interfaces are, are, are becoming more apparent in the real world and hopefully uh, people are, are retaining this oh, yeah. information. You know
1: here in San Diego, uh, you know surf center of you know whatever Southern California, the difference between a city-owned beach and a state beach, it's like people all of a sudden had no idea that that was a thing. Yeah. And the coordination between those beach entities was not good. and all I kept saying <laughs> was, um, I am so glad I am not the executive director of Surf Rider right now.
2: You know, no way. What I'm hearing here is, uh, you know, is evidence and support for the idea that land managers, you know, the, the bureaucracy and the politicians need to empower advocacy groups to be that communication avenue. And they need to support our efforts to increase our membership, increase our exposure and empower us to have you know, somewhat better, you know, ability to manage these trail systems for which we advocate and maintain already for these land managers, but, you know, but have not don't have authority or, or, you know, necessarily a vested, you know, bureaucratic stake in how they're managed, you know, I think that perhaps there's things that could have stayed open had the bureaucracy, the authorities, you know, empowered clubs to be the regulator or to be the you know, the, the steward of, of safe access to these areas, because as we discussed earlier, they don't have the funding to do it themselves. You know, it's kind of like, to me, I see this disparity here of, of, you know, we do all the trail work and advocating for funding and advocating for access, but we're not really given as this has shown the ability to really help with the actual management of the people, which is important. And perhaps if we had some more access to that management scheme, we'd be able to have more membership and to have more support because people would be coming to us and we'd be the ones giving the answers. We're not going and getting answers for them.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Like right now I'm concerned, our one bike park that we worked so hard to get open and was had the grand opening on January 4th. And it was just this magical time of what would, when we have two and a half months of it being open, <laughs> yeah. and it was magical. Yeah. I just, when I would get depressed, I would just go to the bike park because it's a 15 mm-hmm. minute ride from my house. And it's amazing. But I keep telling the County now as it's a County facility, I said, please, please, please keep me in the loop of when you're going to open it. Because the worst thing that can happen is you decide, you announce on a Thursday night that you're going to open it on Friday, and I don't have my volunteers ready on the ground. That is a disaster waiting to happen. And so they agree with me, but we'll see if they actually follow through in letting me be in the loop.
0: Yeah, I think that's going to be interesting for a lot of our relationships. You know, all of us kind of have a a good understanding in the, in the back of our heads about, you know, which land managers we really like to work with and which ones are always a problem. And uh, I think it's like, it's like kids, right? There's always, there's problem child and there's a, You know, there's ones that are just, you know, they, they just is what it is. Right. And, and they shuffle around. I mean, one of, one of the, the best land managers that I've seen in our community is BC parks. And if you were to to tell me 10 years ago that I would love our relationship with BC parks, I would have told you that you're crazy and it's completely flipped around now, but it'll be interesting to see how those relationships change after this, you know, and, and hopefully, you know, and you can hope all you want, hopefully they all improve immensely. And, and, uh, you know, that's all I can hope for.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, we, you know, the other concern is getting our volunteers back out because the trails need it so badly. And we had so much Mm -hmm. rain here and we have trail damage. We have, you know, major trimming and brushing to do. And so I'm encouraged that we were able to do some trimming on a trail uh, last weekend. I sent out some volunteers and they trimmed a trail that opened uh, yesterday and so it was ready for visitors again. And so the land manager was very happy about that. And then we're able to have small, small groups of veteran, you know, our veteran kind of strike crew volunteers up at the Cleveland National Forest this Sunday. They don't care. It's Mother's Day. They'll just go out anyway. They don't care. So they'll be out on Sunday. <laughs>
0: awesome. So I'm going to kind of wrap this up because I'm sure we could make this a two hour episode if we just let it, let it go. But um, is there anything else before I kind of get us our, our wrap up question here? Is there anything that anybody wants to add um, that we didn't get to?
3: Yeah. One, one thing I, I think uh, is really important to bring up is you were asking earlier and you know, if people are reaching out and stuff like that. And the one thing uh, I, ha- I have been a part of is a discussion among a, a number of different people who are looking at, like, how does this, what happens next? Um, And particularly people are looking at the possibility of stimulus funding um, coming down the pipe uh, where, you know, there's expectations that the government uh, is going to start putting out pretty sizable grants and funding to get the economy kickstarted. And folks want to position themselves to be ready for that so that mountain bike clubs and trails can benefit to the greatest extent possible. And one of the things I've been trying to raise awareness about and get people thinking about is how how we respond to this crisis and how we respond to the pandemic and how we try and move past it does two things: it exacerbates and exposes the the problems within our communities and particularly for people who are uh, you know marginalized. Um, So thinking about First Nations and and their ability to respond and how we respond to it has implications. That go far down the road, you know, like I'm thinking here in BC back in 2009, we had the swine flu, which hit First Nation communities really, really hard and didn't really uh, impact the rest of the province in the same way. And First Nations at that time were really trying to get attention and we're trying to deal with it and how the government responded to it laid this foundations for a lot of the conflicts that we're seeing now, 10 years later. So how we respond to this is going to have a huge impact on that. So one of the things I've been trying to do is working with the the groups who are trying to organize the recreation community, trying to organize the mountain bike community and, trying to raise awareness and think about and consider how we respond to this could impact those things. So if you have like mountain bike clubs, you're like, let's get as much money as quickly as we can and build all these new trails. You could end up really disrupting very carefully built up relationships that took a long time to get there. And as I was saying before, I suspect a lot of this is going to hit at least here in BC anyways, the First Nation communities later than the rest of us. And we have to be cognizant of that. So if we just push through and we're like, let's get as much money as we can. And, you know, let's worry about all the problems later. Well, Those problems will definitely come later and they will haunt us for years. So we're really trying to push hard on that. Say, let's make sure that if we, whatever we do, whatever programs we try and push forward on this, if we don't consider how it's impacting those relationships that we've built up very carefully, we could end up uh, having problems like many many years down the road, and it's something we have to be thinking about very very carefully.
0: Speaking to that delay in in affecting those communities, I think I think that's going to be the case with with a number of places. I think you know this whole flattening the curve thing, and and we are not we are flattening the curve. The curve is not flat, and and there's a lot of conversation about a second wave and. And, and that second wave may very well just be isolated in pockets or, or communities or communities that didn't really get affected now. But as we all start to finally get out of our isolation and start traveling around our, our provinces or states, we start, you know, spreading this, this virus in, in places that haven't really seen it. And we need to be really careful, I think. Go ahead, Jay.
2: I was just going to say that, yeah, I think, you know, Patrick's totally right. And, and advocacy groups need to think about this speaking, Back again to what Susie said and what Patrick just said about, you know, if we're looking for funding, if we're looking to be part of the stimulus, that what we do as advocacy groups in regards to if we're doing, you know, we're getting funding to to undertake trail work that we're focusing on you know, equity, um, diversity, the the negative and positive social and economic impacts this has on other communities. Um, in, in BC, especially that the context of reconciliation and relationship building with First Nations, um, as well as um, acknowledgement of, of of land rights and title, and that also that you know if we're getting money now, it's like the focus probably shouldn't be on building new trails. It should be on rehabilitating and hardening our currently existing trail networks because they just took a beating, <laughs> you know, and. And we're always, mountain bike groups are always like, oh yeah, more money, more trails. And it's like, well, it should be more money, better trails, not more money, more trails. I think that that should really be the focus personally. And I think from a you know, rationale and from a logical place that that, yeah, that should be the focus for clubs going forward. If there is money coming out of this, if there is funding and more support coming out of this, then we need to make sure the trails we have are the best they can be. Because they're a, they just took a beating, and a, they're going to see more use going forward if all of these groups that are accessing them are going to continue to access them.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. We did a survey during this downtime because we figured everybody was home on their computers, so we should ask <laughs> them questions.
2: <And laughs> Great
1: idea. We had a scaled we had a scaled question, and one of them was, uh, you know, where do you want Stimba to to uh, set its priorities? And the number one area of focus that got the most um, the highest score was maintenance and improvements on existing trails.
0: There, the trails are getting—you know—exactly what was mentioned. There are more users and, and, a, and a punishment, but it's, it's something that I noticed. And, and this was very early on. I think this was back in like m- middle of March when I first kind of started going into isolation and, and shutting down any work that I was doing, anything like that. Uh, I, I said to my partner, like. It is so interesting when we did go on trail to see what people were doing. You had people who were using the trail as their two meters, six foot spacer Mm -hmm. (laughs) between them. So you'd have two people from two different households walking and they wouldn't be using the trail to walk on. They'd be using the trail to distance themselves from the person that they were walking with. Right. It was like, oh, my God, this is not good for the trails. more people braiding that I've ever seen before yeah. is like, Oh, here, I'll get to the side for you. Like, Oh no, it's okay. I'll just cut through the woods oh, here and oh, I'll just no. braid this trail. Right. It's like, Oh boy, this is, I, I know how this is going to go. <laughs> <laughs> to finish things up. Uh, what I kind of want to do is, is uh, as perhaps like a bit of a time capsule for us. Cause, cause I think, you know, who knows what summer is going to look like who knows what fall is going to look like and and who knows what next winter is going to look like i mean we are a long way off from a vaccine for this thing i think that we're getting to a, a new normal um, but i think it'll be a long time till we're back to the 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 normal normal what i'd like to know from from each of you real quick is is kind of two things on a personal level What's the, what's the thing that, that you miss the most right now that you're not necessarily getting Um for me, that would be babysitting. Um, (laughs) and then, uh, and then, you know, for lessons, uh, what's the, the biggest, and I, I think Susie, you mentioned it where you said you hope that, that, uh, land managers and politicians are taking notes right now. And, and, and I know that I'm taking notes right now. What's your biggest note that you're taking right now? And, and, uh, what's the biggest lesson that you've kind of seen? out of this and, and I, I think for me it's it's just I'm blown away at how many people are trail users that I didn't know were trail users. That's the biggest one. But um yeah. who wants to start us off with that?
1: I can start. I mean I agree with that one. I mean it's it's a different question if you're answering it personally or organizationally. Um mm-hmm. I'll I'll go ahead and do organizationally. I would say in early March when we didn't really know a lot, but we knew something was coming that was really gonna be weird. I was speaking with uh I have a friend who's a marketing consultant, PR consultant, and we were just talking and she's like, Well, do you envision that you're gonna have to do a lot of um, you know, messaging or content building around the situation if, you know, things shut down? And I'm like, you know, I and I wasn't I wasn't anticipating the mass closure of everything. I didn't really foresee that. And I'm like, nah I don't think that much. I mean if a couple of parks close, we'll just, you know, put a post out and let everybody know. But I didn't I didn't see it as this all-consuming task of keeping up with every closure and then every opening. I just, both of us were, we talk about it now and we're like, how did we not see this coming? How did we not know that this would impact not only the trails and our mountains and our deserts and our, our urban parks, but also the beaches? I mean, the beaches, like we didn't, and she's a surfer as well at a rock climber, like we just, I don't think we knew. And that's the shocking thing to me, just in the span of what has it been eight weeks in the span of eight weeks, like we've learned so much. And organizationally, the one other thing, and then I'll, I'll stop is that there is a silver lining here. We have been able to reach more people. And I want to continue that momentum. We have been in in we were in immediate contact with all of our land managers, how can we help what can we do? What's the message? What can we do? And they all appreciated that, and they're in communication with us. So that's a chance for us to strengthen those relationships and show our value to them. We are seeing some increased membership right now. Uh, we are seeing increased engagement on our website, increased engagement on social media, and so there we are reaching different people. I feel so organizationally uh, that has been um, what I've seen.
0: I think the the measurement of time, or or the evolution of our understanding of this, that I've kind of been using is is I think like two months ago we were bumping elbows, thinking that would
2: help us.
1: <laughs> or tapping toes, right? Tapping
0: toes. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. <laughs> what a what a simpler time.
1: <laughs> I call it the before times.
0: Now I say in the
1: before <laughs> times. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, When we used to go to bars, you know. Yeah, Uh. yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Jay, you want to go?
2: You know, I think there, for me, twofold things that I think I've seen come out of this that I hope, you know, when I look back at this time capsule in a year from now or two years from now that uh, I have a a somewhat renewed faith. And this is in the, the British Columbia context of our government and our communities is I have a renewed faith in the social contract. And the sense of community, I think that really, as a province, you know, for the majority, we've come together, we've been supportive, uh, we've listened to the reasoned decisions of our government, and we're, you know, ahead of the curve, in all measurements from a lot of other places around the world. And I think that that, you know, I do have a renewed sense of faith in in the social contract and, and the sense of community. What I've also seen, I think, to a large extent, is we have a minority government right now. And in the last 60, 90 days, we haven't heard any talk about it. The fact that we're going through this with a minority government that essentially could fall at any moment, realistically, with a couple chess pieces moving. I think that, you know, our government has been effective, efficient, pragmatic, logical, and to a large extent, done a pretty good job, and they've shown they can do a pretty good job of managing the province. I'd love to see them continue to do that after there's a pandemic. You know, they shouldn't be operating in this way, just during a pandemic, you know, unrolling out programs, you know, effectively and immediately, you know, enacting changes in legislation, bureaucratic change, bureaucratic effectiveness. It's like, These are things that should be institutionalized at all times. They shouldn't just be there in moments of crisis. Um, And I sure hope it's still happening two years from now that parties are getting along and things are happening because we've got a lot more on our plate than just this pandemic going forward with climate change, with population increase in the province, with the rural urban divide is Provincially, we got a lot of big issues to fight, you know, resource economy, all these things are also exacerbated by the pandemic. And, you know, I would love to see our provincial government keep operating at the level and and the effectiveness it's been going right now. And man, I miss not going to punk shows. I, <laughs> I love live music. And that yeah. is the that is like I the, the first punk show I can go to is going to be probably the greatest day of my last 10 years.
1: <laughs> yeah live, live music personally is definitely yeah. lacking as well i'll say
3: patrick what about you well i think as as far as what i miss i i definitely miss being out in the communities i as i i love the work that i i get to do and and along with justin we get to travel and go to some of the most beautiful places that you can think of in bc and we get to spend really amazing times with people and getting to know them and, and learning thing about learning things about you Know where they're from in their lives, and it's those can be among the most rewarding moments in my life, and I look forward to that. But at the same time, in terms of you know taking notes, uh, I'm also coming to uh, something I've known for a long time is that my life and what I do is has too large of a footprint and requires too much of a large circle. Like, I have I travel all over the province and mix and interact with thousands of people, and I've known for quite a long time that you know, that wasn't necessarily sustainable. And I was always hoping that the payoff of what we were doing and making communities healthier, more resilient, et cetera, was worth the, the resources and the time that goes into doing that. And I think going forward, I'm going to be spending a lot of time thinking about how can I make, how can I still do that good work, but make my world a little bit smaller or a lot smaller. And I think that's something that, all of us need to be thinking about and that this has given us a really good opportunity to sit back and think about that. You know, we talk about our perspective, having a moment where it shifts and we can see new possibilities and that new thing, like new ways of doing things. So I think if there's any notes that we need to be taking, it's around that. Like this is, we, you know, the world basically gave us a chance to pause and think about what we're doing. Uh, and I hope that we're all, we're all doing that. And I, I've been thinking about that a lot and it's, I'm torn. I have been for a long time because I love what I do, but at the same time, I know that it needs to change.
0: Well, thank you uh, all three of you for just a wonderful conversation and, and, you know, a a little bit of socializing, which I, uh, which I miss right now. (laughs) (laughs) It's always nice as well. And it's just great to to get uh, the three of you together in in one space, whether that's virtually or or, or not. This has been
3: great. Hopefully someday it won't be virtually.
0: Yeah. Thank you, everybody.
2: Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Brent. Thank you. Thank you, Brent. Thank you. Take care, everybody.
0: This episode of the podcast was recorded on the traditional territory of the Tsleil Squamish, Musqueam, and Stolo nations. My guests join me from the traditional territory of the Kumyai, Comox, Slayaman, Humalco, Okanagan, the Sinixt, and the Tunaha. If you're curious to learn more about the traditional territory that you occupy and recreate on, then visit native-lands.ca. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. You can also join the Facebook group at Advocates on the Frontlines of MTB. You can send me an email or audio file to info at frontlinesmtb.com. You can stream the show on Mountain Bike Radio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And if you haven't done so already, leave a review on wherever you get the show. It helps others find the podcast. Don't forget to support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes, along with a link to the Frontlines MTB Book Club, where a portion of any purchases made on Amazon after following those links will be sent to the podcast. And a big thanks to Ernest and Susie for making donations. In the show notes, you'll also find links to each of my guests' various websites and social media links. Thank you to this episode's sponsor, Tools for Trails. For a 30% discount, go to toolsfortrails.com slash discount slash podcast. Music, as always, is by Lee Rosevear. Production notes by Jennifer Pride. Artwork is created by Brandon Gallagher-Watson and BGW Creative. And a big thanks to Ben Wellneck and the team at Mountain Bike Radio for their continued support. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening.
2: And happy trails.